Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 23 this morning. The title of our sermon is Reconciled from Evil. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are evil, reconciled, and hope. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find the text on page 983. Page 983. Now, all of us have had to deal with division at some point in our lives, whether it's in our, our personal relationships, there's some kind of breach in that relationship at times, perhaps a betrayal, trust was broken, the relationship maybe was severed. For some, we might experience division in the workplace, division between maybe management and the, work, and the, the rest of the workforce, or between coworkers. Because maybe they're not putting in the same effort, or we perceive that to be the case. Some of these divisions can can cause us to completely stay away from one another or avoid each other, while other other, uh, divisions might simply be differences that we learn to live with and simply set aside and allow our relationships to go on without making a big deal over those things. But division is part of life. And I'm sure all of us have had divisions in our lives that have left us at complete odds with one another, so much so that we we didn't want to see the other person at all, and we were tempted to say exactly what we think about that person to everyone else around us, and we can't believe anyone would have anything to do with them at all. In fact, the Bible actually teaches us that there are some divisions that we ought to intentionally maintain, especially if there's a person who is a danger to the church. There are people who Paul says are to be marked and to be avoided. But one of the sweetest things to experience is that when there is division, that wall of hostility, when it is broken down, and we get to see the building and the restoration of a relationship, For example, there's an African-American man named Daryl Davis who for three decades now has made it his, his work to travel around the United States and to seek out white supremacists, mostly members of the Ku Klux Klan, in hopes of changing their minds. Over 30 years, Daryl has convinced over 200 KKK members to leave the Klan, and he says he does it all by first befriending them and simply asking them a lot of questions. In an interview he did, there's a documentary film about him you can watch on the internet. Daryl said, it's a wonderful thing when you see a light bulb pop on their heads or they call you and tell you that they are quitting the KKK. I I never set out to convert anyone in the Klan. I just set out to get an answer to my question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And so he said, I simply gave them a chance to get to know me and treat them the way I wanted to be treated. They come to their own conclusions that this ideology is no longer for them. I am often the impetus for coming to that conclusion, and I'm very happy that some some positivity has come out of my meetings and friendships with them. It's a neat story. Now, most people aren't willing to even make an attempt at some kind of reconciliation to that extent. But even still, as dramatic as that example might be, as we hear that and we know all all of the 
all of the hatred that comes behind something along those lines. It is a beautiful picture of reconciliation for us, but as dramatic as that is, it is a very small thing in comparison to what happens when a person is reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this morning's text, as we continue to look at at Paul's letter to the Colossians, we get to this in verses 21 through 23, where the Apostle Paul tells us about this reconciliation. He tells us about this dividing wall that stands between man and God, and how God has brought that wall down that we might dwell forever with Him. And so let's read together to see this beautiful drama Unfold Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now remember the section we looked at last week in verses 15 through 20. It gave us a glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and His preeminence, His supremacy over all things. He created all things. He sustains all things. By Him, all things exist. By Him, all things hold together. Paul made much of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. And now in our text this morning, Paul shifts from making much of Christ to making much of what Christ has accomplished in our salvation. And so as we... As we look at this and we see Paul is emphasizing the absolute greatness of what God has done for the believer. And all of us can look at this text and immediately say amen right away knowing there is no greater experience, no greater blessing in this life than to know the salvation that comes by Christ alone. There's this magnificent exchange that takes place. This great exchange, our sins and the penalty for our sin placed upon Christ and His righteousness granted or counted to us His right standing before the Father that we might stand upon that. And He took the wrath reserved for us that we might receive the merits of His righteousness. That we might be counted as righteous even though we are guilty sinners. And and as blessed as the Christian life is, As amazing and as wonderful as the blessing of being in Christ is, our salvation is not a minor prelude to something else. It is an experience without parallel. It is a gift beyond compare in this life. Being made a new creation, receiving a new heart in the Lord Jesus Christ, not having to endure the wrath of God, but instead being called His sons and His daughters, being drawn near as His friends, receiving the inheritance of Christ, this blessing cannot be minimized. And there's nothing greater in this life. And so in this section, Paul outlines what that looks like. What we were, what we have become, and what we will continue to be because of Christ. And I want you to notice, through everything we look at this morning, the initiative that is taken in reconciliation to make all of this take place, it is all in the hands of God. 
We don't initiate reconciliation. God does. God moves toward us when our backs were turned against Him. And so the first major point we see in verse 21 this morning is that apart from Christ, we are alienated and hostile toward God doing evil deeds. Again, he says in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds. Now notice how he begins verse 21. He says, and you. Now Paul is making a comparison. We have to remember this in light of our text last week. He's showing just the, how stark the difference is between the preeminent Christ and sinful mankind. He intends to shock the conscience a bit here. He directed our eyes, remember, toward Christ. He helped us to see, to, to remember this amazing picture, this, this glorious description. And our eyes and our hearts and our minds were directed to look upward to Christ. And then he says, and you, and you, compared to Christ, uh, apart from Christ, here's what you were. He gives us three specific descriptions that are true of every person that has ever lived, whether in Colossae in the first century, whether in Savannah, Georgia in the 21st century. For some of you, this may be a description of you right here and right now. So I hope you will listen. I hope you will hear the glorious truth of what God does for all who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that this description of who mankind is is something this very day that will become a description of you in the past and not in the present or the future. The first description that he gives is that we are alienated from God. Alienation. That's a term we are all probably familiar with. But there is a separation. There is a detachment. And without relationship, uh, we don't have a relationship to the source or, or this other person or this other thing, whatever that is. So in the biblical sense, what Paul is saying about the human condition is that we are estranged from God. We are alienated from God. We come into this world alienated from God. And this critical relationship on which every other relationship depends has been broken. It has been fractured. The way the, the, the Colossian believers would have heard this about alienation would have been far more powerful than how we probably hear and think about the word. The way that the word was used, it describes a permanent and persistent condition, a continuous alienation from God. In yourself, from the moment that you were conceived, you were alienated from God. You are separate from God. And in yourself, there is no remedy for this alienation. There's no desire to remedy this alienation. And as a result of this alienation, it is difficult to find true peace in any other area of life. All we have to live upon when we are alienated from God is our own finite wisdom. And we are hoping to merit God's favor through our finite works and whatever kind of finite goodness we think we can conjure up. But this is a problem that we cannot fix. And so as a result, we find ourselves often to be in a state of loneliness, a state of confusion, a state of alienation and being at odds with one another, taking and giving offense. We are cut off from others in truly meaningful ways when we are alienated from God. The Apostle Paul also describes this as hostile toward God. In our minds, we express a deep-seated hostility toward God. 
In the heart of the person who is alienated from God, there is an anger, there is a hatred for God. You often hear today from the the so-called modern atheists, and they will say something along the lines of, we hate God. Well, first they'll tell you, there is no God, and we hate Him. And we'll spend all of our time raging about Him. And it's interesting that we really don't spend our time arguing about, uh, about Zeus not being God. We don't see people writing books to explain to us why, why Vishnu isn't God. We don't hear about conferences on the subject of the absolute non-existence of the generic God of deism. People all believe these things. People hold beliefs in all of these things. And yet nobody cares if they believe about them and nobody really talks about them. Why is that? It is because the hostility of mind of the unbeliever is a hostility of mind toward the one true and living God who has created them, who sustains them, and who has written his law on their hearts to show them their complete inability to live up to the very standard that he requires and that they know exists. They argue for the non-existence of God, of, of the God of the Bible, because they hate him, because his law condemns them. And unlike Zeus and Vishnu and any other idol, they have a profound knowledge of God's existence and they hate him. Sometimes you, you may hear Christians say that in the world around us there's just a, there's an apathy toward God. People just don't care about God. But the reality is that there is no apathy toward God. Apathy toward God does not exist. You either love God and are thankful to be His child and all that He is and all that He's done, or you have a hostility in your mind toward Him. There is no apathy. And we've all probably experienced this. A while ago, I was at a French restaurant with a pastor friend, and and we got to talking to the waitress, an older uh, French lady right here in Savannah, and I was talking to her about my love for French cuisine, and she was quizzing me about the five mother sauces of French food, and I was nailing all of them. And then she asked me the question, she said, what do you do for a living? And now, if you ever want to see natural hostility from a person that's apart from Christ, it has nothing to do with the Lord, you can answer this question the way that I have to answer this question. Uh, I'm a pastor. And immediately, our new French friend looked straight at me and said, Oh, you and I are in very different places. And I said, Well, it doesn't have to be that way. And very quickly she said, And I will tell you, right now I don't want to hear anything else about it. But that's a normal response. Or it just gets very awkward and they say, oh, ah, that's cool. Uh, We sure do need some rain, don't we? (laughs) My new response is to say, ah, I'm a teacher. Because they will always ask, what do you teach? And I tell them, I teach ancient Near East literature. And they'll say, oh, wow, that sounds very interesting. What kinds of works are those? And I tell them the most amazing books that have ever been written in the world, things like the book of Genesis and Psalms and Malachi and the Gospel of John and the book of Ephesians, at least then when they want to write me off, they can't pretend like they didn't care at first. (laughs) 
Alistair Begg tells a story of a time when he was golfing and on the 10th hole, uh, these guys he was playing with finally asked him the question, what do you do for a living? And so he, uh, he told them, I'm a pastor, and they all teed off and Alistair was in the fairway waiting to hit his next shot. And one of the men from the group ran up to him and he said, hey, why didn't you tell me you're a pastor before we started? You've been judging me this entire time. Now, the man assumed that because he was ranting and raving the entire time, cussing and screaming and being crude and, and crass, that Alistair Begg was, was judging him since he's a pastor, even though he never said a word to the man about anything other than golf. But why would anyone assume such a thing? Because Alistair Begg as a pastor is a representative of God, and when a person is naturally hostile toward God, their hostility cannot help but spill out of them. Notice all that Paul says about this and what it all results in. The third thing he says is doing evil deeds. This is part of that. Their alienation from God, their hostility toward God in their minds is naturally going to result in evil deeds. This is what we learn from, from Jesus in Matthew 15 when he said, but what comes out of the mouth, it proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. From out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. The things we say and the things that we do and the way that we do them, these are all shaped by these deeply rooted motivations that express what's really going on in our hearts. It's never accurate to say, I didn't mean to say that. After we've realized we've offended someone or said something that we shouldn't have said. It's far more accurate to say, I shouldn't have said that or I, I wish I hadn't said that. But what proceeds from our mouths and the actions that result are true expressions of our hearts. Lying to save face or, or cheating on financial records or stealing from our neighbor or murdering an enemy. All of these evil deeds are part of everyday life and all of these stem from alienation and hostility toward God. If it were within our power, we would have taken Jesus off the throne of the universe a long time ago so that we could sit there ourselves. It was the greatest of all evil deeds, the most heinous of all sin, to crucify the Son of God on a cross to attempt to do away with Him forever. This is our condition apart from Christ. Because you and I both know if we were amongst the people in Jerusalem, we would have raised our voices with everyone else to say, Crucify Him! Unless our hearts and minds are changed by the grace of God, there's nothing you can suggest that would be any more awful than this condition that the Apostle Paul explains about humanity. In the 17th century, a Christian woman named Lady Huntington, she invited one of her friends, the Duchess of Buckingham, to hear the great George Whitfield uh, preach. And afterwards, the Duchess sent a, a letter to the lady. And it said this, she said, it is, a, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. But this is the natural response, isn't it? Our hearts, our ears... 
in our natural condition cannot bear to hear the truth of Paul's pronouncement that we are alienated from God, that we are hostile in mind, that we are doing the deeds that we are doing are evil deeds, but it is devastatingly true about every single person from the top to the bottom, from the north, south, east, or west, no matter your ranking, no matter your breeding. But this isn't the end of the story, is it? Paul shifts away from what we were in the past before we were in Christ and he shifts to the present of what we have become. He doesn't leave us there. And praise God for that. In verse 22, Paul shows us that in Christ we have been reconciled to God and our enmity has been destroyed. I love how Paul juxtaposes these two things here in verse 21. He said, you were hostile and alienated and doing evil deeds... But then in verse 22, we get this glorious shift of thought, and he, he's telling us, but now, you were this way, but now things are different in Christ. But now, because of what Christ has done, things have changed for you dramatically. When a person becomes a Christian, they undergo this radical transformation, and, and Paul explains this through terms of reconciliation. The hostility has subsided. And the way Paul says this really emphasizes that this reconciliation is so complete that there is no remaining question with regard to our standing before God. It is total. But Paul doesn't want to leave anything up for guessing, and so he goes on to remind the Colossians of how it all happened. There is no doubt left about this reconciliation being achieved. He says, in the body of Christ's flesh through death. Now this direct language is, is Paul's affirmation that Christ acquired a human body at the incarnation and in that very body he died the death of a man for the sake of his people. This whole statement is intended to remind the Colossians of what, of what God has done positively but you'll recall that he's very craftily replying to the false teaching of Gnosticism that was beginning to find a foothold in the church in Colossae. Remember, the Gnostics had this belief that anything physical was bad and anything they determined was spiritual was good. And so they had this false conception that Jesus could not be the true God or if he was, then he didn't actually have a true body of flesh because in so doing, the divinity of Jesus would be tarnished. But that's exactly the opposite of what God did, isn't it? That's exactly how all of this played out. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh and blood. He took on a human nature. He became 100% man while maintaining 100% of his divinity. He was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit so that he might not inherit the sinful nature of Adam. He lived a perfect life in fulfillment of God's perfect law prior to going to the cross as the unblemished, spotless lamb, all in fulfillment of an eternal covenant that was made between the Father and the Son. And this is the means by which God would reconcile sinful men and women to himself. Christ in his humanity died in our place. He was rejected by God. He was despised and forsaken for us while God remained on the throne and all three members of the Trinity continued in perfect unity of one substance and one essence. How? I don't know. These things are a great mystery to the human mind. 
We cannot comprehend the, the fullness of what happened in that moment, but it's a great reality that this is the greatest story of all time of the majestic, supreme, preeminent Christ that we saw last week becoming like us, living like us, being tempted like us, struggling through the difficulties of life like us, suffering in this life far more than any of us will ever know, and yet all of it without sin so that he could die for us and be raised from the dead for us that we might experience everlasting life with him. So you see, our being reconciled to God took nothing less than the death of Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on himself the just results, the the penalty for our hostility toward God so that we might live a life of reconciliation with him. He made peace with God through the blood of the cross. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace. And so you see, there is no length of love. There is no depth of sin that God will refuse to go to deal with in order that we might be reconciled to him. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with all things graciously give us all things? So in in two verses here, we see the darkest possible picture of man and who he is apart from Christ, and yet we see the highest, noblest vision of mankind, that when you truly grasp it, when you realize the unbelievability is now made believable, that we might walk faithfully with this Christ. Look Look at verse 22 again. When we are reconciled to Christ, We are presented before Christ as holy, without blame, and beyond reproach. We become, as Paul writes in Romans, co-heirs in Christ's promises. And we are given the blessing of eternally delighting in all that is glorious and holy. But listen, if we have been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, this is our position now. Before God, right now, in Christ, we stand not as hostile enemies, but as co-heirs of all of the heavenly blessings of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul wrote about this, and he said this. He said, Martin Luther used a simple analogy to explain it. He described the condition of a patient who was mortally ill. The doctor proclaimed that he had medicine that would surely cure the man. The instant the medicine was administered, the doctor declared that the patient was well. At that instant, the patient was still sick, but as soon as the medicine passed his lips and entered his body, the patient began to get well. So it is with our reconciliation and justification. As soon as we truly believe, that very instant we start to get better. The process of becoming pure and holy is underway and its future completion is certain. Isn't that a glorious promise for the believer? 
The remedy for sin has been delivered. The reconciliation with God has been secured. The process of sanctification then begins, and we're being made holy in Christ day by day, week by week, year by year. We become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ in life until we fall asleep in the Lord and are glorified with Christ. So what that means for us here and now is that we are no longer obligated to sin in this life. Our natures are different. We are not enemies of God, and so our natures have changed. Our entire disposition toward God has changed, and our disposition toward the world has changed. And as a result, we're made able to walk in true holiness. Now, we will sin. There's no doubt about that. All of us will sin. All of us have sinned today, but we aren't obligated to do so. And yet, and yet, notice how Paul frames this. That as a result of being reconciled to God in Christ, he, Paul is still writing about the preeminent Christ here, he will present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. In other words, before himself. This is amazing stuff. The preeminent Christ presents us before himself as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, let's be clear. You are not holy, blameless, and above reproach. But what Paul is telling us is that in the eyes of God, in Christ, because of Christ, we are declared, we are seen as, we are counted as holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so the most demanding The most exacting judge in all of the universe is completely and totally satisfied with the credentials of those who stand before him, not because of themselves, but because of the credentials that have been provided for them in Christ. And so he sees us not as those who are at fault, not as those who were once his sworn enemies. He sees us as those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus, Jesus who has taken the blame and the penalty for the sins of all who were once his enemies. You see, the contrast couldn't be more stark between who we were as enemies and who we are in Christ. In our former state of things, things could hardly be worse, right? We were without Christ, and therefore we had no hope. We were without God in the world. But now in Christ, things could could never be better. Because Christ has died in our place, God has no reason at all to reject us and every reason to embrace us as his friends, as his sons, as his daughters. Now, this doesn't mean life on earth will be easy. It's it's certainly not. We still live in a world that is yet to be reconciled, so we still face sin and our own flesh and the devil and sickness and, and suffering and death. But the future is secure. Our standing is certain, and Christ is sustaining us each and every day. This was exciting news for the Christians in Colossae, and it should come as a profound relief to believers today who have been tempted to yield to any modern versions of what the Colossians were hearing. This reality frees us up from legalism, from anything that says we need Jesus plus something in order to be right before God. Jesus plus certain behaviors that we do or don't do. Or Jesus plus certain ways we say things or do things. Or Jesus plus a certain amount of service in the church. Or Jesus plus a perfect Bible reading plan completed. 
I mean, you name it, the things that we tend to look to in determining whether or not someone is a Christian apart from the grace of God, alone, uh, uh, apart from looking to their faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, anything that we want to add to this is what we're seeing in Colossae. may have been different requirements, but they're additions to the gospel. And so it may not be Gnosticism that we're prone to believe, but it's just another form of legalism, of entangling legalism that keeps us from the heart and the essence of the gospel and the freeness of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. What could be greater than this amazing transformation described in these verses? To go from being an enemy to now being accepted. From hostility to friendship. From suspicion on our part and wrath and indignation on God's part to completely new footing where there's mutual love and that is central to the relationship. This is surely the most enormous change possible. Any converted person has received a blessing of monumental proportions. The new teachers in Colossae had had subtly tried not only to diminish Christ and who he was and who he is, but also to chip away at people's appreciation of what he has accomplished for them. And yet, what more can almighty love do than to turn a rebel into a delighted worshiper and a valued companion? Now, With all that being said, it doesn't mean that God just wants us to sit back and wait until we die to never do anything at all. Sometimes the way we read and hear the gospel is so shocking in its freeness that we need the reminder that as believers, as people who have been justified, as friends and sons and daughters of God, as those who have new hearts, we also have new affections. And with those new affections come new desires to walk as a people who are striving to live according to God's command, striving to live according to all that God has called us to in good works, in faithfulness, because we love God, because we want to honor God. And we we do not want to offend God, but we want to please Him as our loving and gracious Father who has given us the greatest gift of everlasting life. This obedience is the evidence in our lives that this transformation has taken place. This is the medicine we took, to use Luther's example. It really is at work within us. So finally, this morning in verse 23, we see Paul wrap up this section by showing us that Christians must strive to persevere in a lifetime of faithfulness. You and I will never outgrow our need for the gospel. God's grace is the foundation of our salvation, but it's also the motivation for our continued obedience. Now, I can imagine this this verse in verse 23 might cause some confusion, so I, I hope to be clear here. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Is Paul saying here that it is possible that we could lose our salvation? You may be thinking, What if I don't continue in the faith? Now certainly at some point in our Christian lives, most of us or all of us have sinned in some way that it has left us to even question or to to doubt whether or not we were Christians at all. Maybe we've thought about our salvation and, and we wonder, maybe I won't continue in the faith. 
We're prone to doubt and to believe the lies of the evil one and maybe believe that we aren't safe in Christ. We often have a lack of assurance of our salvation. That we, need, we, we need not have this lack of assurance, though. The Bible is abundantly clear. But, but Paul is not suggesting here that a person can lose their salvation. Paul is saying something like, if you stand firm in the faith, and I know that you will. There's a confidence in what Paul is saying here. But he's also saying it in a very specific way because he wants to be clear that a true believer, a person who has truly been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, will walk in a certain manner. And if you're not walking in this manner, then he's saying you need to check whether or not you were in the faith in the first place. But we don't go in and out of the Christian life. And so, and so Paul here is, is commending the Colossians to continue in the faith, but he's doing so with great confidence because they cannot shift from the hope of the gospel if they have believed the gospel. So, to be clear, Paul's confidence is not because the Colossians' faith is so strong. It's because the Savior is so strong. It is not because the Colossians are steadfast, it's because our Savior is steadfast. And as they cling to Christ, they constantly keep coming back to the reality of this utter dependence upon Jesus. They were separated from Him. They've been reconciled to Him in Christ. And and so there's this recognition of an utter dependency that the believer has upon Christ. Have Have you ever been in a swimming pool with a child that doesn't know how to swim? And as you swim with them, they wrap themselves around your neck and they squeeze really hard and they they hold tight and they don't want you to let go. And so maybe you're both going to drown at some point because you can't breathe. But there's this utter dependence. There's not a point where you just, they just sort of say, okay, now I'm, I'm good to go. No, they hold on and they don't let go. This is the Christian life, brothers and sisters. It's not our gaining. We never gain greater independence. We're never able to go out and swim on our own. No, the further we walk as Christians, the closer we pull into Christ. The more we depend on Him, the more we realize we need Him. And our continuing to depend on Him, our continuing in the faith is a sign of our profession and our profession of faith being genuine. So you see, God's purposes are being fulfilled to create a holy people in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see what Christ has done. We recognize what God is doing in sanctifying us. And we see what God will do when we are presented finally and fully as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now for some of you this morning, you may very clearly recognize your alienation and hostility. Maybe you've found it easy and natural in your life to love that which God hates and to hate that which God loves. You sense that separation. But let me tell you, as Paul tells the church in Corinth in in 2 Corinthians 5, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. To be reconciled to God is the work of Christ. And it is you holding on to Him by faith, placing your faith in Christ, trusting Him with all of your life, repenting of your sin, and walking with Him as the only hope for everlasting life. You will never outgrow this. You will never find your greatest needs fulfilled outside of this. 
This is our great God. This is our great Lord Jesus Christ who has brought his enemies near. He has crowned us with everlasting life in him as his children. There is no greater story. There is nothing in this world I would rather be called than a son of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you this morning especially for the glorious truth of the gospel. Lord, we never outgrow this. We never, as your people, grow tired of hearing this. And the nearer you draw us to you, the more we delight in who Christ is and what he has accomplished on our behalf as we see more and more of what we are, what we have been, and what you have rescued us from. And so, Lord, this morning may our hearts as your people overflow with thanksgiving for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your love. May we, in faith, draw nearer to you that we may walk more faithfully, more trustingly, Father, you have given us everything. You've given us your son. May we live upon him every day of our lives, making much of him, dying to ourselves, and seeking fully to live upon his righteousness alone. Lord, we pray for anyone here this morning who does not know Christ, that you would bring them too to the end of themselves, that they might see and behold the glorious truth of the gospel that you might break down the wall of hostility for them, that they might walk in the newness of life. And we ask that you would do this for your glory and the building up of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.